Good, 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 good match show. Welcome everyone to another solo edition of the Good Match Show. You said I couldn't be here today, so it's just me, just Nello. What a what a weird week I have had. I think that can be pretty much said the same for everyone right now. I uh, I got tested for COVID. I was in and out of the hospital. Uh, my mental health collapsed. What a fucking week. So doing better now. But God, I am tired. Um, although things could be so much worse. So I'm grateful that even with all that, I still had a an interesting week. At least you know I got um I got Fire Pro Wrestling World for the PlayStation Four. Finally, um, the deluxe edition. I'm not sure if it's still on sale, but it was ninety dollars, and now it was on sale for only twenty six dollars. So that was quite a steal. Um, Isai was telling me about the career mode in WWE 2K20. I can't remember now, but next time he's on, we'll talk about that because it's supposed to be pretty wacky. And then I even got a, uh, a Nico Pro March pack for all the Joshi that happened. So hopefully next show we'll have a fun little, fun little story, you know, on all of the uh, happenings in Joshi with Act Res, um, Gato Move, Ice Ribbon, Sendai Girls stardom all that good stuff so that should be pretty fun now for the uh wrestling week in review 2aw action advanced pro wrestling so we talked about 2aw last time and again for those who aren't familiar with them uh 2aw was one of the splintered groups from the original kai and tai dojo the k dojo but last year when takamichu noku's affair was made public in japan he lost the k dojo and the company splintered off into two different groups. Takamichinoku's Just Tap Out promotion, which was largely the um, Young Lions. And then the um, and then most of the vets formed their own promotion, Action Advanced Pro Wrestling, a.k.a. 2AW. So they've been having their Grand Slams lately, their last one on March 25th. They just had their most recent one on April 28th. So we have the newly crowned tag team champions, Chongo and Kaji Tomato. Uh, Tomato defeating Katara Yoshino and Tatsuya Hanami. Not as good as the match from last month, but still really fun. And man, I am so into Chongo and Kaji Tomato and all of their little antics and weird techniques. They're a lot of fun to watch, so if you haven't checked them out yet, definitely give them a look. And then Yuji Okabayashi defeated Taishi Takazawa in his first defense of the 2AW. Um, it's either middleweight or openweight championship. I can't remember. I'll have to look it up. Um... But yeah, this was a great match. Taking a guy is now the next challenger. And that makes me imagine that Ayato Yoshida will be the challenger after Tank. And, you know, if anyone is going to take the title off Yuji Okabayashi, I'm hoping that it's not Shu Ashikawa. I'm actually hoping that it's Ayato Yoshida because I think that he is arguably the ace of 2AW. After just watching the one tag match with him, he has the look, he has the technique, he has the presence, the in-ring skill, everything. And then also with his background and being... Somewhat of a, you know, quote unquote, young line in the New Japan system for a bit while K Dojo was open. I think that greatly helped him. So I'm excited to see a lot more from Yada Yoshida. And 2AW has quickly become one of my favorite promotions. So yeah, I'm really enjoying everything they're putting out. Now, on the flip side, unfortunately, the BJW Strong Clan, Ben Japan Pro Wrestling's uh, biannual tournament this year split into four blocks. With the block winners being Daichi Hashimoto, Daisuke Sakamoto, Jake Lee, and Quiet Storm. 
And if you're wondering why I said quiet storm like that, it's because it's exactly how it should be said. This uh, former Noah wrestler that's come into BJW doing freelance, it's kind of like, you know, when you look at the blocks, why did Quiet Storm win? Um, I'm not sure. But this was pretty comparable to the Noah Global Tag League in terms of head-scratching promotional booking. Um, so in the semifinals, Daisuke Sakamoto loses to Daichi Hashimoto in 12 minutes. And essentially what is a truncated repeat of their title match from either February or March of this year. While Jake Lee, one of my current favorite wrestlers, and maybe that is why I was so upset by this, is because I've obviously indicated bias. But Jake Lee lost to Quiet Storm in four minutes. Four minutes for the semifinals via countout. And like, man, imagine if the G1, or any tournament for that matter, if in the semifinals these guys have fought... God knows how many matches, and I mean, in the in the strong climb, they only do four matches each, but still, for it to then end in just a four-minute count-out, that's something that Toru Yanu or Yoshinobu Kanemaru does in their respective tournaments to just, you know, fuck up Taiji Shimori or someone like that for a match. It's not something that you do in the, in the semifinals. So, again, just head-scratchingly, puzzlingly booking, puzzling booking. <laughs> that was a horrible fucking sentence. Um, and then in the finals, Daichi Hashimoto wins the 2020 Strong Climb. So he cements himself as the champion as well as the tournament winner. So it'll be interesting to see who his next opponent is out of this. However, Big Japan has canceled the rest of their um, scheduled shows for the remainder of May, I believe. So they are currently crowdfunding 10 million yen to hopefully help them out in this time as they need to run shows to stay in business you can also purchase stuff from their international store i was actually going to do that today they had a really awesome abdullah kubayashi 25 year shirt um, just a heads up though the shirts are all about 30 to 40 dollars and then shipping alone is going to run you about 32 dollars so if you're looking to help out big japan wrestling please do so but just keep in mind it's pretty steep so if you're going to buy some stuff i would recommend maybe getting a couple of things to make that shipping cost worth it um and then finally uh, not finally but triple a has announced and started their lucha fighter tournament and i was going to ask isai if he wanted to watch and review this and i'm hoping he's going to um this is a lot of fun so far i mean just some of the participants laredo kid Ohio del vikingo dr wagner jr drago psycho clown la park and pentagon jr among many others so Pentagon coming back to AAA here. I mean, I don't think that he's been gone for long, but just ever since this pandemic started, him and Phoenix have been sort of off the grid. So happy to see that he is back wrestling, doing what he loves, along with these other participants. I mean, on the second day, the main event is Pentagon Jr. versus Nino, Nino uh, Hamburguesa. So it's a lot of fun, a lot of really crazy matchups. Um, so yeah, check it out. Uh, AAA is back if you're starving for wrestling i think that tournaments are the best way you can go i am fucking praying that this does not go to the wayside like the strong climb and the global tag league because there's just been something about this pandemic in regards to investing in tournaments and then getting very little payoff as a result um now on smackdown just gonna do a quick rundown of smackdown and raw lacey evans defeated sasha banks who was our show's prediction to win the money in the bank which leaves me kind of scratching my head wondering who the hell is gonna win it now um 
uh, I'm not really a fan of Lacey Evans, you know. I um, I believe the things that Effie, the queer independent wrestler, has said about her, meaning that she did not offer or create space for queer individuals. And as a queer individual, I have to ally with my community and say, you know, Lacey Evans, if she obviously hasn't changed at all, if she's never publicly apologized for it, you know, and she just kind of keeps coasting on the success of being in the WWE, well... What purpose then do I have in rooting for her and someone that doesn't want to root for everyone? Um, that's really all I have to say on that. You know, I acknowledge that she constantly is trying to improve. I don't think that she is on the same level as someone as Bianca Belair or, say, Liv Morgan, but she is trying, I suppose, and it's all you can really do. I don't, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about at this point. So I'm pulling up... Um, the weeklies here so after that we had the lucha house party showing up and defeating Miz and morrison which another it's kind of one of those things where look at just what happened we'll get to apollo cruz on raw but they're starting to promote or at least seemingly promote these you know fringe tertiary acts that never really get any shine otherwise in a multi-man pay-per-view match say the Elimination Chamber or the Battle Royales or something like that. And here you have the Lucha House Party defeating Miz and Morrison, the former tag team champions. And I'm hoping that something comes out of this. I really, really am. But it's going to be hard to imagine. I guess I just don't have much faith in the company, you know, following through on these things. And that's... Um, but yeah, I love Grand Metalik. Lince Dorado is cool. I'm really, really hoping that Metal Heat finally starts to get some shine because he is, without a doubt, one of the best wrestlers and most underutilized in the business. Um, and then finally, in SmackDown, there wasn't a whole lot of notable stuff, but Vince McMahon showed up during the Triple H segment, and mostly everyone else has already talked about it, and, you know, I don't want to add any fuel to the fire. Um, this really was just someone that seems like they shouldn't be in charge of things at this point at least on a creative level, because I think that this showed that this was just very out of touch and disconnected and kind of disconcerting to say the least. So yeah, wasn't really a fan of this. Um, it looked like the Hunter and Sean were completely blindsided and none of the jokes landed. It was very hard to watch. And you kind of just had to wonder if this guy didn't have all this money, who would actually be listening to him? Now for Monday Night Raw, we had the 25-minute six-man tag team opener of Aleister Black, Apollo Crews, and Rey Mysterio defeating Andrade, Garza, and uh, Austin Theory, who at this point desperately, desperately need a faction name, please. Like, they're doing the fists, they're doing poses, they have everything but a name, and for me, it's just like, how fucking hard is it to come up with something? Call them Wilson Gobernables, call them the fist, call them whatever you want, just give them a name. I mean, I shouldn't say whatever they want because watch next week after they give them a name, I'll be complaining about what the name is probably. However, I will say that these six men, I guess I shouldn't say these six because Mysterio hasn't been around a lot, but his match against Murphy was great and Apollo Crews and Aleister Black was fantastic. And then Andrade Garza and Theory have just been jobbing every week. Or not jobbing, but really just putting in work. I don't want to say that they're jobbers in any way. I think that their stocks haven't really deflated at all with their series of losses because they're constantly coming back. They're like a parasitic force, parasitic triplet. Um, I think that all six of these men and then others should be really commended for what they've done in this time because they have really demanded attention. And I think that their match quality has proven that. 
Um, Bobby Lashley wins in a squash without Lana. So now we know that Bobby Lashley without Lana is amazing. And then Bobby Lashley with Lana ringside is quote unquote distracted. Um, no mention of the tire flipping. I'm still not sure what the tire flipping had to do with anything last week other than maybe to get Vince off because he loves that muscle man shit. He's probably in the back like, oh, that's good shit. That's good shit. You know? Um, Liv Morgan beats Ruby Riot in a follow-up to their match from last week in which Liv Morgan also won clean. But this time she wins in 2 minutes and 55 seconds. First I asked, what's the point? And then I realized, well, this time she beat her quicker. So if anything, she got better and Ruby got worse. Um, it just makes me feel sad for someone like Ruby Riot who just came back and was put into a, into a weird position to essentially dismantle whatever sort of kind memories were left of the Riot squad, which obviously meant so much to them, considering that Sarah Logan, Liv Morgan, and Ruby Riot all have tattoos. Sarah Logan's no longer employed, Liv Morgan's getting pushed, and Ruby Riot, well, she is probably going to become a Dana Brooks sort of thing now. It's just a floater, I would imagine, which is unfortunate, but you hope that through hard work and determination, they'll get what they're owed, but again, this is the WWE if anything, I think that Ruby Riot should be in a tag team because obviously Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross need challengers and Dana Brooke and Carmella is not going to cut it forever. Um, Jinder Mahal, a returning Jinder Mahal, defeated Akira Tozawa. Again, just a total fucking bonehead move here. It's the same as um, NXT using Shane Thorne to job to Dexter Loomis after MVP promoted him and Brendan Vink as new top prospects to the Raw tag team division. You're going to have Akira Tozawa, who's currently 1-0 in the NXT Interim Cruiserweight Cla uh, Cruiserweight Championship Tournament, lose to a returning Jinder Mahal, and it's just kind of like, so this guy's good enough for this, but when it comes to this, he's a joke. And it's, um, I think that's really disheartening. I think it's disrespectful, especially to the audience that pays attention and watches all these shows because you're constantly inflating and deflating stock of these individuals with no clear cohesiveness or narrative between the shows like there is absolutely there's just no there's no goddamn what's the term um <laughs> there's no constant in wwe right there's like for most shows you have what's called a show bible and what that means is that in this show Bible, you have all of your characters. You have everything they've ever done. So that way, when you create a new thing, you can kind of go through their history and say, A, have they done this before? B, is this in line with their character? C, does this make sense for their future plans? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And WWE's never had one of those. So characters are constantly doing things that don't make sense. They're contradicting their storylines that are happening on other shows. And it's frustrating as someone that chooses to invest in the product and actually pay attention. It's goddamn frustrating. Then we had Andrade defeating Apollo Crews in 16 minutes and 45 seconds via ref stoppage. And this is what I want to say. This was the Apollo Crews show this week. And I never thought that I would say that about Monday Night Raw, especially a three-hour Monday Night Raw. But first we had Crews in the opening segment with uh, Mysterio and Black, which sort of posited him as a star, at least on their level. So Crews, I would say, is now at the very least a mid-card talent. And look how long that took for him to get there. Less than a month for us to root for this guy, which shows that these characters can be salvaged, that these characters can be rehabilitated. And then after the match, after Cruz gets a pin on the U.S. champion Andrade in a 25-minute six-man tag match, we have a backstage segment in which Apollo Cruz slaps the fucking life 
slaps the life out of Andrade and really shows some character and some gusto, some gusto. God damn, I loved that. It was so, as someone that was a huge UHA Nation fan and even got to see him wrestle in the independence, one of the kindest men I've ever met in my life, I'm rooting for Apollo Crews. And you know what? While I do have problems with Cruz's arc, so I'll say this: Cruz's arc on the show ends with the rest stop, and she can't move his name, and it ends with him crying backstage. And I would not have a problem with this normally. If this was in any other company, if this was in AEW, I would say I think that's great. I think it's great that they showed him crying because he's human, and humans when they fail, sometimes they cry, right? Sometimes this shit just happens. And in WWE, though. I don't think they see it like that. I think they see crying as a sign of weakness. I think that if you're looking at it through Vince's head, you're looking at it like, this guy's trying to now emasculate or make fun of Apollo Crews because he just couldn't get the job done. So in WWE's hands, no, I don't like this narrative of him crying because it feels mean, emasculating, neutering. But if it was in the hands of another company, I would be okay with it. Um, and then we had the... And also, why fucking book Cruz for this past month if you're only going to take him out of the money in the bank match? It just, it makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. And um, I'm really hoping that that changes and that he still gets some sort of shine. Then we had the Drew McIntyre and Seth Rollins contract signing. Um, this was fine. I think that Drew McIntyre is absolutely the star of the show. I think every segment he's been in, he has commanded it. He is not someone that has... Um, that deserves respect. He has taken respect, and I, I admire that. I love that we have a baby face that is intelligent, a baby face that always stands tall, a baby face that does not back down from fights, a baby face that does not fall for stupid fucking shenanigans. Like, even when he's fighting Andrade, he never gets distracted by the other two. It'll just lay him out. And it's really great to have someone intelligent and here weekly that is the champion. It's such a foreign concept for us WWE fans to actually have a weekly champion there, but. I love it, and I'm really enjoying this Drew McIntyre run, and I'm hoping that him and Seth's match is great. I, can, I imagine that this will probably go for a couple months at the very least, so I'm hoping that... Um, I think that this will probably go for a couple months, and then I think that in those two months, they're going to build up gender, because after Seth, Drew needs another heel, and the gender and Drew storyline writes itself, and I'm hoping that maybe goes for a month, because it really doesn't need to go any longer than that at that point. So, I mean, let's put it here. Seth and Drew goes May through June, and then Jinder is just a roadblock on July, and then August, we get the big SummerSlam match for Drew, and I swear to God, if it's a rematch between him and Jinder, I'll be so bummed, but I think for SummerSlam, you can really pull out something big, do a Brock rematch, do whatever you want in front of the people, praying that we get some people, I can't imagine that we will, I don't imagine that we will have people in these arenas again, at least until 2021, but that's just my insane predictions, so... Anyway, let's get over to a quick recap of AEW Dynamite episode 30. Opened up with Cody defeating Darby Allen in 20 minutes and 11 seconds. I am really sick of Cody Rhodes' matches. Um, I am not a fan. They follow such a... At first, they were a nice diversion from the rest of the card because you usually have a hardcore match, you have a squash match, you have a... A really well-wrestled workhorse match. You have a technical match. You have a Cody match, which is uh, overbooked-to-shit match, right? So in every Cody match, you have a ref bump or you have a manager bump. 
and then you have a, um, a big distraction. You have a no-sold finisher. You have all these things. And at this point, it just feels formulaic. Like when you see a Marvel movie, it's like, okay, the third act, they're going to blow up everything. Yep, there it goes. And now they win. Yep, the heroes always win. And I understand, I completely understand what's happening with this narrative. So the first time Cody and Darby fight, they go to a draw. The second time, Cody wins via arm because he says, get that shoulder up. He's going for the coffin drop. And the third time, Darby hits the coffin drop and Cody rolls him through. I thought, though, that the idea, while good, the execution was shit. I thought that it looked super sloppy. I thought that Darby looked like a geek for not knowing that his shoulders were on the mat and that he was the one getting pinned because it was fairly fucking obvious from everyone else's standpoint um and I, I i don't have i didn't have any preconceived notion that darby was going to go to the finals and lose to lance archer or possibly pull this off i knew that he was going to lose to cody but god damn it at least do something interesting or something that doesn't you know lower the stock of the individual we then had wardlow defeating musa two minutes and 22 seconds um musa i think had a pretty full meal in this, eating Wardlow's knee, coming off the top rope. We had a no DQ, no count tag team match between the best friends, defeating Jimmy Havoc and Kip Sabian in 13 minutes and 17 seconds. Again, AEW shows, excuse me, are like a buffet, right? So we got the Cody Rhodes match, we got the squash with Wardlow, now we got the no DQ match, and then we have the well-wrestled match with Lance Archer and Dustin Rhodes. So we get a little bit of everything on this show. No DQ match was a lot of fun. Trent seemed like he had a death wish out, death wish out there. And this is these are the matches where Jimmy Havoc really, really shines. And I'm hoping that him and Kip Sabian go forward. Um, I would say, though, that the amount of tag teams on this show is so much that I don't understand how some of them can't get lost in the mix at this point. Um, because it's almost like every single individual winds up in some faction or some group. And, you know, I guess... Maybe this is what it is, is that I'm so conditioned that people, only people that with titles matter in WWE because that's what they've conditioned me to believe because most of the people are geeks. So maybe I'm thinking that with all these people, you know, constantly infused but never even getting a shot at the titles, it's kind of like floundering or floating around for me. But I, I guess in AEW, it doesn't quite feel like that. I would like to see the best friends perhaps get the shot at double or nothing for the tag team gold. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Maybe the Dark Order comes back. I, I don't even know if Adam Page will be coming back, but hopefully we get some news on this coming Wednesday's Dynamite as they go back to being live. Uh, Sean Spears defeats Baron Black in a nothing match. Brody Lee defeats Marco Stunt in 3 minutes and 8 seconds in exactly what you'd think is a Marco Stunt squash match. And then finally, Lance Archer decimates Dustin Rhodes in 22 minutes and 44 seconds. Um, also, I will say real quick, I know that a lot of people have been commending all these bubbly bunch things. And I think that I detest them. I understand what they're trying to do. And it's funny, but they're so sloppily made and poorly produced. And it's just like, I'm not a TikTok fan in general. I think that whole culture is just so like, uh, I suppose. And if you like it, I think that's great. I think anything that serves a dive is it a version or a form of entertainment to take your mind off of things is wonderful. But for me, it's just kind of like, okay, and I think that on a nationally syndicated television show, to show this, sure, you have the exposure of the celebrities, but let's talk about the celebrities here. Lou Ferrigno, uh, tertiary Tiger King character, Chris Jericho's dad. Like, these aren't, these aren't, 
number movers in any way, right? Jane Silent Bob, whose new movie didn't even come out in theaters. Like, I don't know. That, that was rude. I shouldn't have said that. But um, it's just, I don't really like this cringy sort of humor. I think that that stuff can really go. The Britt Baker segment, however, was really good. Um, but yeah, I think that these, these flim flams and all that stuff, that's WWE stuff turned up way the fuck up. And I think that if you're going to criticize one product, you got to make sure to criticize the other. Uh, Lance Archer versus Cody Rhodes now for the finals of the TNT title tournament. That's going to be awesome, I imagine. Especially with two managers ringside. Arn Anderson and Jake the Snake Roberts, assuming that happens. Um, maybe not, because they're both high risk for Corona. But, um, yeah. Maybe they'll they'll have like those uh, two of those guys from Arrested Development when they just... Uh, the surrogates for Jake the Snake and Arn Anderson. That would be fucking great. Rest in peace, Funkman. Rest in peace, Super Dave. Alright, now for NXT episode 402. We have Isaiah Scott defeating El Hio Del Fantasma in the WWE NXT Cruiserweight title tournament group B match in 8 minutes and 36 seconds. I'm happy Scott got a win here. I saw Fantasma taking the group, and I guess he still can technically. And then uh, after the match, something that's of note is that Fantasma was almost kidnapped by the mass luchadors. And supposedly what Dave Meltzer, Uncle Dave, has reported is that the idea potentially is that an unmasked uh, Phantasma will be the leader of this group while a masked Phantasma is fighting against them or some shit like that, which sounds absolutely bonkers, and I am so, so fucking into it. Next, we had a newly repackaged Candice LeRae, the poisonous pixie, defeating Casey Kenanzaro in four minutes and two seconds with the Super Dragon Foot Star, Super Dragon Curb Stomp, now renamed as the Wicked Stepsister, and I am all fucking about this. Her and Johnny is a tag or as a heel couple, are phenomenal. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens once Killer Cross and Scarlet come to the mix. I think that what we need for this to work is that Johnny and Candace need to be having fun with being evil, right? Like, for them, it's like, fuck, we've been so good for so long. Think about it like this when you're growing up, right? It's like, I've been so good for so long, and now I'm going to college, and I deserve to do some truly crazy shit, right? I feel like right now, that's where Candy, Candace and Johnny are. They're in their rum spring of phase, if you want to get Amish about it, right? They are enjoying themselves. They are giving in to their sadism for the very first time. So they would sort of be a... A chaotic evil, right? Or a loft, like, or, or I don't even know where they would fall in the spectrum. But then, then you need to have Killer Cross and Scarlet Bordeaux, right? And they don't need to have fun with it. They need to get pleasure from it, right? Like for these two, they need to evil and hurting people is what they fucking do, and that's just what they know. Think of it like this, right? When you have two heels team together, like Chris Jericho and Kevin Owens, when Kevin Owens turns on Chris Jericho, Chris Jericho doesn't become a babyface. He's still a chicken shit heel. But Kevin Owens goes that much further to the seventh circle of hell. I think that's what we need, is we need this sort of shades of heelishness between these two couples, and I would honestly love to see it culminate in a tag team intergender match. Um, I don't know. I've never really seen... I've seen Scarlett wrestle a bit here and there in Triple H. I believe it's Sammy, but I know Killer Cross is a base in the ring. I'm not sure if Scarlett can match up to Candice, but man, that would be a really great match, you know, six months down the line or some shit for sort of couple supremacy. Um, but that's the perfect way to sort of get Johnny and Candice to sort of resume like, fuck, what are we doing? We're not that bad. But at least stay tweeners, right? Then we had Charlotte Flair defeating Mia Yim in a good match. Um, 
I'm excited for Io Shirai and Shirley Flair next week. We had Dexter Loomis defeating Shane Thorne in 3 minutes and 28 seconds. The same as we discussed about Akira Tozawa. Why book Shane Thorne in this match? You have 200 contracted wrestlers. There's no reason you need to book Shane Thorne in this match. It's wrestling. The only things that are real are the things that you decide are. And they constantly, without fail, book themselves into corners over and over and over. Um, a lot of people don't like Dexter Loomis. I am intrigued by him, to say the least. I like his presence. I like what he's doing. I am interested to see what will happen with the character. Um, someone online, I think, mentioned something along the lines of Dexter Loomis being someone that enters the ring and seemingly just wants to interact with the other individual and then they start attacking him and he does not understand he simply replicates what is put onto him so he copies what he sees so he isn't so much a killer as he merely is because a lot of people just say he's a serial killer i don't believe that so much i think that he's just a silent musing type very curious and he just doesn't quite understand the you know day-to-days of wwe or wrestling or whatever who the fuck knows how this guy got here in the first place without realizing how wrestling works but i think that's more interesting than him just being a serial killer and i'm hoping that we actually get some depth added to this character eventually Next, we had Drake Maverick finally getting a win over Tony Nese in the WWE NXT Cruiserweight title tournament in a Group A match in 7 minutes and 8 seconds. Drake Maverick wins with a top rope bulldog in what looks to be kind of a over-the-top maneuver, but nonetheless, the Drake Maverick narrative continues, and again, this is just such a corner they booked themselves into. The finals for Group A will now be Drake Maverick versus Kushida. And assuming that, so this is what I see happening. So Jake Atlas cuts the win over Drake Maverick. Now Tony Nese is 0-2. Tony Nese maybe needs one win, right? So Jake Atlas either beats Tony Nese and goes 1-2, or he goes 2-1 he beats Tony Nese and goes 2-1 and, and loses to Kushida, or he goes 1-2 and, and loses to Kushida and Tony Nese, and that way him and Nese both wind up 1-2, with Maverick winning 1-2 as well, and Kushida wins the block at... Three and O, or Kushida wins the block at two and one, or something like that. Who knows? By losing to Maverick, because if Kushida beats Atlas and Nice, and then the fi- and the finals for the block are Maverick versus Kushida, then whoever wins that match will win the tournament. And I think that Kushida needs this title because he has done nothing in NXT so far. He has had great matches, um, one against Walter. Um, he's had, I can't remember, God, I can't remember any others off the top of my head right now. I don't even think Kushida has been on a takeover yet, and he's been there for almost a year, and I think that he really needs something to bolster him or to put him up ASAP, because it's getting to the point where, I mean, obviously we had Keith Lee there for a bit before he ever really took off, but, you know, it's, with someone like Kushida, I really want to see him succeed. He's one of my personal favorite wrestlers on the roster, so... I am hoping that Kushida wins this. I hope that Maverick gets his job back, hopefully. But still, I can't say I'm a fan of this Maverick storyline because a lot of people really did lose their fucking jobs here, and Maverick included. And if they just pick this one random guy to get it back, it's kind of like, all right, what about the others, you know? And it's good for Maverick, but it's bad for the others. And it's just, it's a head-scratching sort of thing, I suppose. Um, Next up, we had Keith Lee defeating Damian Priest in 11 minutes and 20 seconds for the NXT North American title fine match um pretty much what you expect from a keith lee damian priest match and that brings us to our main event of the night our good match jaguar yakota versus lioness asuka from august 21st 1985 at all japan women's summer night festival in budokan 
Here, the background, we're gonna talk about Lioness Asuka first. Born, or actually, you know what? Let me check this out real quick because I forgot to do this somehow. I did all that shit and I forgot this. So let's see how many matches both of these women have. Lioness Asuka has one, two, three five-star matches, while Jaguar Yokota has one. All right, so there we go. Lioness Asuka, born Tomoko Kitamura on July 28th, 1963. Excuse me. Asuka joined All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling in 1980 and had her professional debut on May 10th of that year. She was an immediate success, winning her first title, the All Japan Women's Junior Championship, the following year, and the All Japan Women's Singles Championship in 1982. In 1983, she formed a tag team called the Crush Gals with Chigusa Nagayo. The Crush Gals were huge stars for the AJW in the mid-1980s. They featured with Dump Matsumoto and the Jumping Bomb Angels. Just some of the coolest fucking names ever. Jumping Bomb Angels, Crush Gals, all that stuff. And also, just a side note, the AJW Singles Championship is not the top title in AJW. That would be the WWWA World Singles Championship. Um... A little confusing there. Kind of like uh, how there is no New Japan Championship. It's IWGP or there's no NOAA Championship. It's GHC. Things like that, right? Um, so thanks to their fame, All Japan's weekly television broadcast consistently brought in ratings over 12.0. That is insane. It means 12% of the total television population at any given time or during the broadcast were watching this. So over 10% of the overall television population. Truly wild. Their fame also carried over into other media, including recording top 10 singles. Uh, in the late 1980s, the Crush Gals broke up and Asuka began a lengthy feud with Nagayo, which culminated in her achievement of the WWWA World Single Championship in 1989. She retired later that year, but came out of retirement in 94 and formed the Redeen Array, a faction consisting of fellow freelance wrestlers Jaguar Yakota and Bison Kimura. She subsequently wrestled for many of the new women's promotions that arose at the time such as JD Apostrophe also known as J Starred and Arsian in 1998 she made a significant move when she joined Gaia Japan the promotion run by her former partner Nagayo Asuka began her Gaia career as a top heel feuding with Nagayo and in one storyline winning control of the organization from her and eventually creating the superstar unit the SSU a faction composed of veteran stars such as Akira Hokuto Aja Kong and Las, uh, Las Cacharas Orientales among others. However, near the end of 1999, Nagayo and Asuka united against a common rival, the Mayumi Ozaki-led faction Team Nostradamus. God damn, these are just seriously the coolest names. And the next spring, reformed the Crush Gals. That had to have been so awesome to see the Crush Gals re-team like, re up after god 18 years or something like that the storyline was huge news in japan and gaia show of april 4th 2000 featuring the debut of the reunited team now called crush 2000 was the biggest in the promotion's history due to a neck injury asuka announced her retirement on november 3rd 2004 her retirement was made official on april 3rd 2005 where she and chigusa nagayo teamed up for the last time to defeat chikayo nagashima and sugar sato at gaia's 10th anniversary show some of lioness asuka's Accolades include a two-time AJW champion, one-time AJW juniors champion, a two-time WWWA world singles champion, a four-time WWWA world tag team champion with Jagusa Nagayo, 1999 World Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame ent uh, entrant or inductee, and the Joshi Grand Prize for Tokyo Sports in 1997, among many, many others. Jaguar Yakota. So now we're going to talk about Jaguar Yakota. 
Having been inspired to join All Japan Wrestling by 1970s stars, the beauty pair Jackie Sato and Maki Ueda, Yokoto debuted on June 28, 1977, so a bit before Lioness Asuka, in Tokyo at the age of 15 against Mayumi Takahashi. She won her first belt at the age of 18 on January 4th, 1980. Um, when she became, she might have been 18 yet. She might have been 17. So I don't even know when her birthday is. Let me see. Jaguar Yokoto, because that'd be crazy to win a top title. So her birthday is July 25th, which means that on January 4th, 1980, when she became the junior champion, she was only 17 years old. That is fucking insane, but super, super Joshi. <laughs> Later that year, she won the WWWA World Tag Team Championship with Yumi Hori on December 17th, having also become the first All Japan's Women Champion with the victory over Nancy Kumi two days earlier. On February 15th, 1981, so with 18, she was a top champion. That's fucking wild. February, she's a Tyler beat of All Japan's Women's. February 25th, 1981, she achieved her greatest success at that point, defeating her original inspiration, Jackie Saito, for the WWWA World Singles Championship at only the age of 19, the time of her first title reign. Legendary. She lost her first World Championship to La Galactica on May 7th, 1983, in a mask versus hair match, then won it back a month later. During her second world title run, she had a very notable feuds with Devil Masami and Lioness Asuka of the Crush Gals, which we will get to in this match, but then had to vacate the championship in 1985 due to a shoulder injury. After her early retirement in 1986, she was only 24, she became a trainer for Age All Japan's Women. All Japan's Women. All Japan Women's. Goddamn. Notable students of hers included Manami Toyota. The queen of the five-star match, Toshio Yamada, Megumi Kudo, one of my favorites from FMW, Kyoko Inoue, and T- uh, Takako Inoue. Um, on November 20th, 1994, Yokota ret- returned from retirement to wrestle at the Big Egg Wrestling Universe, one of the most legendary shows. She teamed with Bison Kimura and went to a 10-minute time limit draw against Linus Asuka and Yumi Ogura. Queen Yokota, this inspired her to return to wrestling full-time. JD, uh, JD apostrophe, K JD Star. In 1995, she came out of retirement to form her promotion, JD Star, and wrestled as its top star until 1998, so a duration of three years when she retired for a second time. Uh, Yakota came out of retirement and announced the formation of her promotion, JD Star, in a press conference in 1995. In the beginning, she was the focal point of most of their shows. She left the promotion in 1998, seeing that the promotion was going nowhere and began to work freelance, which she still does to today. After her departure, J.D. Starr was bought by Kiyu Uji, and much like Yakota before him, the promotion got nowhere, even with the help of established stars such as Lioness Asuka, Aja Kong, and Chigusi Nagayo. The company had a nice roster, but none with the ability or personalities to attract much attention. In 2001, Hidenobu Ichimaru bought J.D. Starr from Kiyu Uji and established a new gimmick to promote J.D. Starr's talent, the Athtris. Athtris. Athlete actress. Athtris which used girls with model-good looks to market them for their athleticism in the pro wrestling ring and hopefully establish them as actresses. Does this sound like any other women's division to you? (laughs) Maybe the divas division of the mid-2000s? Coming mainly from an acting background, the first run of girls had few skills and the fanfare dropped slightly. The actress gimmick, however, created more controversy than anything in the attempt to create an idol never quite caught on. Also dropping was the wrestler's respect for Ichimaru as several of the established wrestlers in Joshi Puro Resu thought that the actresses should not be in the same ring as them. Fooling the summer of 2007. Retired uh, Jaguar Yokota then stayed retired from 1998 to 2004 as she began to have a family. Yokota married in August 2004 to the lead vocalist for the obscure but seminal 1980s Hokkaido-based hardcore band Tranquilizer. Gotta fucking listen to them. That sounds cool. 
She has since returned to the professional wrestling as a freelancer, including a stint as part of the Monster Faction and Hustle as Jaguar Y. So now for the match. Again, this is from the... Where is it? This is from the August 21st, 1985 All Japan Women's Summer Night, Fe- Summer Night Festival and Budokan Show. Um, the match begins with the opening promotional music. The commentator introduces the match as the bell rings and the crowd begins to chant. Both competitors walk out in what appears to be what appear to be geese, but I think um, it looks like Yokota is wearing a white robe with the title, but that Lioness Asuka is actually wearing a gi with a black belt. The women are flooded with bouquets of flowers, as is tradition in all Japanese main events. Yokota, the champion, wears the championship title, whereas Asuka wears the black belt. The ring announcer then sets the stage. The amount of streamers and screaming girls that fills this arena, this arena is truly unfathomable. I can't imagine young girls caring this much about wrestling nowadays in any way. Like, what the fuck? Can you imagine any... Can you think of any modern example of this dedication, passion by these young women for this wrestling? Because, I mean, we hear little high-pitched screams for Roman Reigns and shit like that. We hear the Ishis and the Ibushis, but I don't think that it will ever reach this level again. And it's crazy because if you think about it, right now, WWE probably has its strongest women's stars. I mean, Becky Lynch was just uh, rumored to be the cover model for one of the nation's leading women magazines in a huge cover story. I mean, that's huge, right? So they are now cross-platform stars, and Becky Lynch could even become a a rock-type, Cena-type character. But still, young women aren't coming back to wrestling. We've got to ask, why is that? So anyway, there is palpable heat between the two as they ready their stance for the bout to begin. And goddamn, does it feel like there is about to be a fight. A quick handshake and then back to their corners as they quickly circle each other. Holds are exchanged and quickly countered and bridged out of. And that is something that I really, really admire to this match. And again, I will say this was my first All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling match. So even in stardom, there's a lot of kickouts, but I wouldn't say that there's as many bridge outs. And I think the bridge out is my new favorite thing in wrestling. Um, we'll get to it. So holds are exchanged and quickly countered and bridged out of Linus Oscar whips your coat into the ropes and hits a spinning roundhouse. What an incredibly quick start to the match. This is oozing shades of Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid. Right? Jaguar, Yakota, and Linus Asuka begin to exchange various pin attempts now. Asuka and Yakota lock legs and spin around until a rope break, while Yakota does a beautiful flip to avoid a clothesline. These women are easily some of the most agile and smooth performers I've ever seen. I am truly astounded that this is 1985 and these women, people in general, are moving like this. I mean, it is fucking astounding, really. The level of skill, craftsmanship, and technique on display here is to this day, I think that out of all the matches we've watched, all the old ones so far, like Takata versus Yamazaki, Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid, uh, what was the last one we just did? Um, Kobayashi versus Tiger Mask 2. They're all good, but no one really performs like that anymore. They, they've they elevated that style. People still perform like this today, and I think that's what's so impressive about this match. So Linus Asuka then applies a back wrist lock that Yukota gets out of and begins wrenching the leg. Um, and that will be... <coughs> Oh, <coughs> bless me. That will be a constant through this match, the working of limbs, especially the leg, the right leg. Um, the right leg of Linus Asuka. Linus Asuka breaks out of the leg lock, but then Yakota turns that move as well into an almost uh, STF, rope break. 
Yokota refuses to break the hold for a bit and then begins working over the leg as Linus Asuka clings to the ropes. So anytime that one of these women crawls to the ropes and grabs it, the other woman's going to wrench the hold even harder. The ref's going to call the five. The woman's going to let go then immediately grab them, pull them back in the middle, and start wrenching it again. There is no love loss here. The women stand back up and begin circling. They test each other. Asuka goes for a drop toe hold and misses, while Yokota quickly succeeds in the maneuver. It's a series of one-upmanship by Yokota thus far in the match, actually. Where Asuka fails, Yokota succeeds. When she goes for the drop toe hold and misses, uh, Yokota gets it. When Asuka goes for the leg lock, Yokota gets it. Yokota is now still working over the legs some really just great psychology so far in this match yakota maintains firm control and lifts Las, uh, linus asuka by her hair and whips her into the ropes and hits a big drop kick on her face and then a reverse run of pin La, asuka jumps out of a corner attack and this um so then linus asuka gets thrown in the corner avoids an attack and hits a flash pin then hits uh, yakota with a big palm strike and a kick to the head just really brutal stiff attacks a huge body slam by asuka and she begins to work over yakota's head snap bears by uh sna she snap mares jaguar yakota and reapplies control of the head wrenching her neck and moving into a moving um in moving behind her sorry Yokota now in full guard continues working over L uh, Linus Asuka's right leg. Asuka quickly applies an armbar, which Yokota has to begin to work out of. Yokota now has the armbar firmly applied in the middle of the ring as Yokota continues to prevent the move from being just completely fucked. And this was BJW level submission style selling. Like you can just feel these two working for it. every wrench every movement it's not always really fun to watch people's submission style wrestle or grapple but when it's done right and you can feel it it's fucking entertaining um oscar then gives up on the armbar stands up and snapmares yakota with her arm and then reapplies the armbar beautiful beautiful move i mean this just feels like the catch point boys sit down at night and just watch all japan women's pro wrestling matches because every single movement there is no wasted motion i'm going to put you in armbar i can't get it so now i stand you up by your arm i snap you by your arm drag you and i'm gonna reapply it you never ever give up any just an inch right Great, great submission work by the two. Yakota kicks Linus Asuka in the head repeatedly from the ground and gets her on her stomach as she frees her arm and begins to work the legs. My only question, though, is how much are they actually really selling the limbs at this point? Yukota, uh, because you're getting up and down, getting up and down, but it seems like any they sell the, the, the limb in the point, and maybe it's that, you know, this match does go about 25 minutes, so maybe it's that they have a little bit of spirit in them, you know, I think of it like a wrestling game, you've got to wear the arm to be green, then yellow, then red, to hurt them, right? Um, Yakota wrenches the right leg of Linus Asuka over and over, wrapping around her legs and slamming it on the ground, one of my favorite moves. Yakota now applies a vicious knee bar to Linus Asuka as she attempts to break the hold, she begins a pin, but is quickly resubmitted in the position. Great Great displays of control and technical wizardry here. Shades of Zack Sabre Jr. Jaguar Yakota reapplies the knee bar as Linus Asuka is now audibly screaming. And it's nice to see someone audibly screaming in a submission hole because guess what? Submission holds fucking hurt. Um, it's really cool to see where, you know, people like Asuka and everyone else got their inspiration probably from um yeah so Jaguar Yakota reapplies the knee bars. Uh, Linus Asuka is now audibly screaming. And in the hard cam shot, this is something that happens though. So in the hard cam shot, Linus Asuka looks close enough to the rope to grab it, but never does. And then eventually she just does. So she eventually grabs the rope. That kind of took me out of the match for a second. So I would have preferred a different camera angle there. And of course I'm going to nitpick because that's what we do here. Um, 
She eventually grabs the rope, but Jaguar Yakota continues the assault on the leg, once again wrapping it up and back bumping with it. And I will say this real quick. The reason why I criticize the camera movement is the same reason I criticize the commentary, is the same reason why I criticize the refs as much as I do the wrestlers, um, as well as the writing or just the, the overall presentation. All of this stuff matters, right? The wrestling is the music. Everything else are the lyrics. And you got to fucking get, provide the lyrics for this song for it to work, right? So if the cameraman is going to fail them in that sense, you need to have that shot next to the ropes where it looks like she's not close enough and then she finally grabs it to up that sense of desperation and determination, right? Anyway, um, Asuka finally grabs the rope, but Yakuta continues the assault on the leg, once again wrapping it up and back bumping with it. So what she does is she stands up, wraps the leg around hers, and then falls backwards with it. Just a great move. Yakuta now applies a frontal face lock and wrenches the shoulders and arms around the head. I have no fucking clue. This match moves so fast, so a lot of these moves might be worded wrong, so I apologize. But uh, Yakuta then whips Lannis Asuka and hits a big hip attack and applies an octopus hold, elbowing and sawing at the ribs of Asuka. The octopus hold is then turned into a schoolboy, and Yakuta kicks out quick count. Um, we get a jackhammer, and then Yakuta once again locks in the shoulders of Linus Asuka. What happened to the legs? Because now she's just sort of beating the hell out of her. It's like she gave up on the legs. The legs weren't going to cut it, so now she's just working the back and the shoulders of Asuka, just wrenching her back in what looks like a, almost like an inverted full Nelson. Um, as if you're going to do like a double hook, double arm hooked DDT. Um, Jaguar Yakuta now applies a figure four leg lock. So by subduing the shoulders and the upper body, Linus Asuka's... And this is the conclusion that I came to because I was trying to think of the psychology in this match. So Yakuta kept working the legs, but Asuka kept finding ways out of it. So now by subduing the shoulders and the upper body, the Linus Asuka is far less likely to jump out of these leg locks now. It is a complete decimation of the body and spirit. The figure four leg lock is held for a minute or so until Linus Asuka reverses it and Jaguar Yakuta begins to scream out in pain now. And this is pretty much the ending of the whole submission stretch, which is probably the first half of the match. Um, Jaguar Yakuta gives everything she has to alleviate the pain and try to re-reverse the figure four leg lock, but fails to. In the middle of the ring, we get a fucking the beautiful most one of the most beautiful shots I've seen from wrestling so far, of an above birds bird's eye view shot of AJP uh, AJW's ring mat and the women struggling. Um, I'll try to post it as the um, as the picture for this podcast episode, actually, because it's just a gorgeous shot. Um, finally, Jaguar Yakota reverses the figure four leg lock and begins to bridge a bit, all the Charlotte Flair, um, like the figure eight. Linus Asuka grabs the ropes and, is, and the hold is broken up by the ref since Yakota wouldn't break it. Asuka immediately begins kicking, or shoot. I, so this is literally my notes. Linus Asuka immediately begins kicking Linus Asuka, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And literally in my notes it says, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think that it means that Linus Asuka begins kicking Jaguar Yakota, which doesn't make a lot of sense because she's not selling the leg. But it's funny because, yeah, you get it. I wrote the same name twice, so it obviously doesn't make sense. She begins to work over the legs of Jaguar Yakota, who clings to the bottom of the rope. She knee drops into the inner thigh of Yakota over and over. Asuka drags Yakota around the ring by her legs until she kicks her out of the ring. The corner team for Yakota towels her down and gives her water as the count begins. Yakota resumes kicking, but Linus Asuka manages to take her down. Both women back on their feet. And this match is getting, may I say, incredibly fucking entertaining. And I'm like on the edge of my seat at this point. Yeah, Yakota's whipped by uh, Asuka and kicks several times before falling down. Asuka applies a knee bar in the middle of the ring. Asuka holds the knee bar for what feels like forever, and the two begin to roll around the mat. 
here's the thing. The moves applied are vicious, but the quick bursts that follow them don't exactly match the selling beforehand, and it doesn't exactly feel like fighting spirits so much as just a lack of selling. So I like this match so much, though, that I kept trying to find ways to justify it. So obviously I'm a fucking fan. Jaguar Yakota is still in this knee bar and grabs the ropes after about two minutes of the hold. Like, this is fucking Minoru Suzuki versus Kazuchika Okada from the 2017 New Beginning. Wow, how's that for a reference? Man, I love wrestling. Like, this is just submission fucking city, baby. Um, Linus Asuka hits a massive, huge sustained jackhammer that Yakota does not kick out of so much as she fights out of. And this is when I noticed my first bridge out, which is just fucking awesome. So to explain that, a kick out, right? You're on your back and all of a sudden you just kick. Your whole body just flails, right, to get out of this pin. What these women do is that they're laying there and the other women are pinning them so tightly that they have to bridge out from their neck up. So it's like a bridge, right, a reverse bridge. And it just looks real. It looks like someone fighting in a match. That's what works so goddamn well about it. Jaguar Yakota, um, oops. So after this bridge out, Linus Asuka goes for a big lariat, misses, while Yakota hits a schoolboy pin. LA, Linus Asuka then hits a jackknife pin, gets drop kicked by Yakota, but LA, uh, Linus Asuka flips back over the ropes into a pin. If you didn't understand that or couldn't picture it, I don't blame you. That's a quick fucking sequence. And it was beautiful. This sequence rules, but it doesn't feel, again, like psychologically speaking, something people do who just spent the last 15 minutes in knee bars and leg locks. Asuka then whips Yakota into the corner, hits Os- um, who then hits Asuka with one of the nastiest fucking tiger drivers I've ever seen. Again, the kick out is more of a bridge out, very realistic feel to it. Um, the tombstone set up by Jaguar Yakota is reversed by Linus Asuka, who then bounces off the ropes and just fucking murders her with this tombstone pile driver. Two count. How? I thought this had to be it. Like, this was... If you've ever seen Jack Sab- uh, Zack Sabre Jr. take a pile driver where his face is out towards the audience and not in towards his opponent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This guy does it, and you think they are fucking paralyzed. And I absolutely thought the same thing here as well. Um... Linus Asuka gets up and kicks Jaguar, Jaguar Yakota once, twice, and then bounces off the rope. Third jump kick, two count bridge out by Yakota. Yakota backflips out and then jumps, gets caught by uh, Asuka, and then his airplane spun dropped. And Linus Asuka begins to spin her Cesaro style faster than I've ever fucking seen Cesaro do it. This is one of the most beautiful, insane spots I've ever seen. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um... Asuka then goes for a pin, but at one, Yakota begins to bridge out. L.A., uh, the reason I say L.A. is Linus Asuka. Sorry, I just have it in my notes like that. Linus Asuka is frustrated. She slaps a mat and um, throws a f- um, and lifts Jaguar Yakota by her hair. Jaguar Yakota flips around and goes for a German, but it's Irish whipped. Um, but it's quickly, quickly Irish whipped as Asuka then picks her up into a suplex. And instead of suplexing her, she walks over the rope and just fucking dumps her on her head to the outside concrete. Wow, this is Mysterio versus fucking, like, psychosis shit, right? Like, this is, man, this is some of, like, um, I'm trying to find the match. I think we reviewed it for this show. No, it was fucking Rey Mysterio versus uh, Yuvi from ECW. Man, this is, like, the shit they're just throwing each other. So this is like Mike Awesome versus Masato Tanaka. These women are fucking crazy. I love it. Um, 
So then after she dumps on her head to the outside, Linus Oscar then goes for a dive and presumably misses and just eats a shitload of shit on the outside. It's kind of hard to see, but seriously, this back end is spot after spot that even by today's standards are certifiably insane and breathtaking. And at this moment, because I'm so conditioned by the matches that we've been watching, like Kobayashi, Tiger Mask, Tiger Mask, Dynamite Kid, all these other fucking matches, like uh, the Funk Brothers versus Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody, I just, I pause the match and I, th- I say it out loud, Please don't end in a count out. <laughs> and they go back into the ring. Thank God. Asuka goes to suplex Jaguar Yakota back in. She bounces her off the rope and hits the uh, hits the brain buster. So it's one of those moves. I can't believe I'm saying this, but Bo Dallas always used to do it. You hold him in a suplex. You drop him on the rope and snap him back. I can't remember what the, the term is. I'll have to ask Isai on the next show. Um, and then, so yeah. She bounces off the road, then hits a brain buster. Yakota bridges out once again, but looks fucking dead. Asuka then hits one of the most insane elevated German suplexes that I've seen in my life. I know I'm throwing that out a lot during this match, that this is the most insane I've ever seen, but it really fucking is, honestly. Um, Asuka then whips Yakota in the rope, misses a knife chop, and Yakota hits a surprise straight jacket German suplex for a two count. Yakota then puts Asuka on the top rope, goes up, but Asuka begins to fight out and throws Yakota down to the floor and misses a King Kong knee drop. Yakota then locks the leg of Asuka back behind her, grips her waist, and dumps her backwards onto her head. And my first question was, what the fuck kind of beautiful suplex is this? And I found two word, two terms for it. A knee clutch backdrop or a bridging leg hook belly to back suplex what an insane string of moves and that provides a three count for the win yokota retains the title my thoughts i think this is the best fucking match we've watched so far um without a doubt five stars as much as i wanted to deduct or you know 0.25 it's so funny when i say stuff like that because i'm like is anyone even listening to this do my scores even matter it's also trivial but man does it matter to me and while i would have normally have deducted 0.25 four the lack of, I think, selling throughout, this was just a clinic. Man, this was just a fucking showcase of the very best in women's wrestling. And it proves that women are on any level, if not better, than the men. So, so many things that I found attractive about this style, like the bridge outs, um, the, the quick elevated suplexes, like all this shit that seemed to have been lost in the mainstream but continue to go on in Joshi. I can't remember, you know... It's been like a month since I watched Stardom, so for the life of me, I can't remember if they do these bridge outs, but if not, I hope they start doing it again. It almost feels a bit like this all Japan women's style exists sort of in the past, meaning that we never get these big matches anymore. And again, I'm not as up to date on Joshi as I should be with just got hiccups, ice ribbons, Sendai girls, etc. But you know, regardless. I can't imagine how insane this was for 1985. Jesus, because even looking at it through a modern lens, it's fucking incredible. So that's it for this week's show. Next week, we'll have a little bit about, um, you know, the Luce AAA Fighter Tournament. Hopefully, we'll have um, some more stuff. Let me see what the match for next week is. Hopefully, it's a fun one. Man, I love doing this show. So seriously, thank you to anyone that's listening. I really, really appreciate it. You know, like I said, I had to get goddamn tested for COVID this week. It has not been easy for my mental health. And just being able to talk into a microphone and, you know, bullshit about wrestling for, wow, an hour now is 
it's a gift, really. It is so much fun. And thank you so much for listening and doing all that. Next week, we'll be back with Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro uh, Tenryo versus Ricky Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu from All Japan Pro Wrestling's New Year's War Super Battle, January 28th, 1986. And on that note, suck your own. We'll see you next week, baby.